Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. This morning, we're coming to the one that's listed last in the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. And um, just to introduce this, I want to show you just a very short clip from a classic movie, at least I consider it a classic, The Miracle Worker. Have any of you ever seen that? Uh, don't, don't start that thing yet. Uh, this is from 1962, black and white film, classic film. Should I just... Uh, okay, that, we'll just stay with this slide here. Um, many of you know a little bit about the story of Helen Keller. And uh, this movie is, uh, talks about a time in her life. She's about 12 years old. Um, she's, she was a, a brilliant kid, but at the age of about six months, she got this virus that just uh, caused her to lose her sight and her hearing. And uh, so here she is. She's this blind girl. She's deaf. And nobody knows exactly how to reach her. And uh, at this time, she's 12 years old for, from the film. She's not been toilet trained yet. Um, when she eats food with a family, she just goes around the table and just grabs food off of everybody else's plate. And uh, they call in this teacher from Boston who had experienced blindness herself and had had some surgeries named Annie Sullivan. And Annie is determined to teach Helen a little bit about self-control. And here in this little uh, clip that I wanted to show you, she's trying to get Helen started and trying to get Helen just to sit in a chair. I mean, that's maybe a starting point for eating your breakfast. Eventually, she's hoping she could get to the point where Helen could eat off a plate, use utensils, fold her napkin, etc. That's a long time in the future. You know, my, when I show uh, this clip uh, to my, my students once in a while, um, they'll get real impatient with it. You know, it's really frustrating to watch this go on. And they'll always go, why doesn't Annie just tie her to the chair and just make her? And I said, that's just defeating the purpose. She needs Helen to have self-control, because if Helen can't control herself, she's ne never going to amount to too much, you know? And uh, what happened, though, eventually was through a long process, she was able to learn self-control and, and went on to just have a brilliant uh, life, an amazing life. Sometimes you can amount to a lot, so to speak, uh, become a world conqueror like Alexander the Great. And still, if you lack self-control, you got a problem. Alexander conquered the world in just a short amount of time, the then-known world, and then he died at the age of 32. And, uh, you know, they think it was probably like alcohol poisoning. Um, this Latin proverb was probably written thinking about Alexander the Great. It's absurd that a man should rule others who cannot rule himself. And so we want to talk a little bit about self-control this morning, um, which I think I want to define as the ability to master our behavior and rule over the impulses and emotions underneath. And when we think of like self-control, many times we think, well, there are some you know, people who really were out of control. So we think about Jeffrey Epstein, you know, this guy who was like a, a predator, sexual predator, and just an out-of-control life that led him to an you know, early grave. And we think of Ted Bundy, you know, serial killer, just out-of-control homicidal maniac. Or we think of like the communist dictator, Joseph, <clears throat> Joseph Stalin, whose body count was higher than Hitler's. And just people who are out of control like that. 
But I think it's a universal problem. This is something that every one of us struggles with. And what we see, like, in large, with these, you know, notorious people here, we can see in ourselves, but we can control ourselves maybe or control our appearance enough that we never become as, as notorious. Um, there's a good illustration of this from uh, a study that a guy named Walter Mischel, he was a researcher at Stanford in the 70s, and maybe you heard about the marshmallow test, but it's, it's kind of famous where he, he got a whole bunch of like five-year-olds, hungry five-year-olds, and uh, what he, he did was one by one, he would like give them a marshmallow, and he'd say, okay, you're going to have this marshmallow, and if you can hold off eating this for 10 minutes, then I'll give you a second marshmallow. But if you eat this marshmallow before the 10 minutes is up, that's all you're going to get. And then he'd put them in this room, and then he'd film them. And you can see the various like reactions where some, people, some of these kids are struggling, other ones have, have already given up. And, you know, it's like about half of the kids failed. They couldn't make it to 10 minutes, right? In Romans, it talks about this. Um, and it, it talks about how we're too weak to do the good we want to do. This is Paul speaking. And he says, I know the good, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. Don't you feel that way so many times? You know, you, you know what you want. You want to do this good thing or, or keep from doing this thing that you know is wrong. And then you just are unable to, to carry it out. I thought about this, this kid right here. This is like a one minute at a time kind of sequence right here. And you can, you can see him at the top there, right? He's given it, and he's a little afraid he's not going to be able to pass, right? And then you can see as you go across the top there, he's thinking about it. And, he's, and by the time you get to the middle, minute five there, you can see the struggle is real, isn't it? This kid is hurting. But I noticed there at number six, He's already lifting the plate up and bringing it closer to him, right? So it's like, you know how you dabble with the stuff. And then we get to the bottom there. By uh, minute eight, he's got it in his hands. And minute nine, he's eating. He failed the test. And that's Romans 7, verse 18. Uh, Paul defines this as the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. He's actually going to label it that way when we, in chapter 8 of Romans. But he says this in 21 of chapter 7. I find this law at work. And when he's talking about a law here, he's not talking about like you must go 35 miles per hour down Broadview Road. He's not talking about something legal. He's talking about something like the law of gravity, something that's universally true. It's just the way things work in this world. And he says, I find this, this law at work. Though I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? So frustrating. So frustrating. Um, uh, there's a really perfect example, I think, of, uh, of this, this law at work, and it's in the life of Peter. Now, you've got to understand that Peter is just a guy who is, like, super loyal to Jesus. He loves Jesus 
with all of his heart. I mean, he, he's like one of, he's maybe Jesus' closest friend. And he, he really cares about the Lord. And then Jesus is telling them, and this is just a few hours before he gets arrested. And uh, he, he's telling them, look, it's going to be trouble tonight. It's going to come down on all of us here. And in verse 31, this is Matthew 26, Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's going, it's written right there in the Bible that you guys are going to fail me at this time. And then Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. He said, you know, these other guys might waver, they might fail, but I won't. I'm, I won't do that. And Jesus says to him, you're a one marshmallow guy. You know, you're not a guy that can hold out that 10 minutes. I'm sorry to tell you this. And Jesus makes this prediction, which is really sobering. He says, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. You know, this is like Jesus going, look, at I, I know you. I know you. I know your limitations here. And it's just like 40 verses later in the same chapter. It's just maybe four or five hours later, uh, Peter has this confrontation. And this, this person says, hey, we, you're from Galilee. You're one of those Jesus people, right? And Peter goes, he's, he's intimidated. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm not. And then it happens a second time. And then a third time, this, this woman just confronts him. She goes, no, no, you're a Jesus disciple. And it says in verse 74, then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. <clears throat> and how many of us, have not had that same experience. I mean, maybe it wasn't like literal tears, but it was the shame and the embarrassment, or maybe it's the frustration. And you're going, I can't believe I, I was so determined. I, was, I wasn't going to react that way. I, I wasn't going to lose my temper. I, I wasn't going to look at that stuff on the Internet. You know, and here I did it again. Or we, you know, we say, you know, I'm... I wasn't going to lie. I, I, I was going to be an honest person this time. You know, and it was, you know, one, it was like one of these things, and then it happens, and then you're going like, and you keep mulling it over in your mind, like, what, what brought me to that point? I, I, can't, I can't believe that. The good news for you and me this morning <coughs> is that there's an Easter solution. And it's, it's interesting how when Paul is writing in Romans... He, uh, he goes right from chapter 7, and he talks about the answer. And it, it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 2, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So he's saying something has overpowered that law of sin and death in our lives. And so you and I can be the kind of people where we can sit there and we can go, yes, I got that second mark. I did it. We can have that, that joy that comes from that. So I want to show you this morning how the law of the spirit of life 
actually works in your life and in my life. It tells us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, somebody actually came up after the service last night and said, that verse in Titus, I wish somebody had shown me that before. It was like a revelation. We don't usually get into this book for some reason, but um, this is a cool verse. It says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This must be reflecting back to Jesus coming and paying the price and then rising from the dead has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You know, so many times we go like, yes, Jesus has come and he has atoned for sin and the guilt is gone. And that's true. That's huge. That's the big deal. But what we don't realize is that there's also a second part to what Jesus has done and it has to do with the fact that he has defeated the power of sin in our lives. He's weakened it, you know, to the point where you and I can actually learn to be self-controlled. And it, when it talks here about it teaches us, that word literally means to train us. It's a different word. I looked this up. It's not used very often in the Bible, but it's this word that uh, the word pedagogy is based on. Uh, we talk about teaching in terms of pedagogical stuff. And it's idea of training, like the way you train a child. You know, if you're a parent who knows what he's doing, you realize you can't just speak to your kid and give them information. Go, you know, that would be foolish to do that thing. You've got to reinforce it with rewards and punishments. And there's a training that comes along that's sometimes very painful. And so what God is doing here is as we're going along in our lives, he's training us. And sometimes there's some painful lessons that we learn as we go along because this process is never ending in our lives. Here's a little bit of trivia for you, but that same word, training there, is used when Pontius Pilate is trying Jesus. Remember that part where uh, Pilate is like determined to let Jesus go? Right? So he tells the Jews, he's going, there's nothing, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. I'm going to let him go. And they're going, no, no, you got to crucify him. And then he goes, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to punish him. You know, I'm going to beat him. And then I'll let him go. And the word for punish him is that word trains. I'm going to train Jesus. That sounds weird, doesn't it? I'm going to help him to shape up. He's hoping that'll placate the Jews. So that they're going to go like, Okay, he'll learn. They're going like, no, we don't want him to learn some kind of lesson. We want to kill him, you know? So it's that training that goes on. Now, that's the process, but the purpose of it is this. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good, and what God is up to is he's trying to get us to the point where we represent him well. And so when people see us in our neighborhoods and on the job and in our schools and wherever we're going, they'll see that we're, we're different. They're going like, yeah, you know, there's something about that person I like, you know. It's a good guy, you know. I expected him to, to be all about revenge, but he was forgiving, you know, and, and I'd like some of that. That'd be a great thing, you know? And so he's, he's not only redeemed us, but he's purifying him, us 
so that we are people who are eager to do good. Uh, Walter Mischel says this, the guy who did the marshmallow thing. He goes, if you can deal with hot emotions, then you can study for the SAT instead of watching television, and you can save more money for retirement. It's not just about marshmallows. He actually did a longitudinal study where he followed up these kids with the marshmallows, and he found out that the kids who actually made it past 10 minutes had higher SAT scores in school. They ended up being people who could save money instead of just spending it all or going into a lot of debt. They had more success across all domains. And I think what God is doing is he's going, look it, I've designed you know, the way that you should live because I wanted you to be blessed. It works. It actually works, my commandments and stuff. And if I can train you and get you to the point where you're doing these things, your lives are going to be better, and I want to bless you. You know, he's been saying that from the very beginning, that he wanted people to thrive, to, uh, you know, following his ways. Uh, now, here's how the training happens. The Holy Spirit gets our minds where they're supposed to be, is, is one thing. And uh, in Romans 8, 5, it says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the sinful nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So what God is doing is he's, he's reworking our minds. He's, he's helping us to think straight about what we're supposed to be doing. Um, I, I read this uh, article in the Washington Examiner magazine this week about this, this writer went up to New Hampshire and he enrolled for the four-day uh, session at Team O'Neill Rally School. Now, this is pretty cool. What they, he went up there in the winter, right? And what they do is they teach you to drive at ridiculously high speeds on icy roads and in mud and stuff like this where your tires don't get traction. Um, now, they do this because they're training, like, guys who race cars and stuff. But it's good for the rest of us civilians because sometimes we're going to hit icy patches on a road. And if we can learn how to manage these things, you know, we can avoid car crashes, Right. So they do this kind of crazy driving up there. And he said one of the things they stress is avoiding target fixation. Like, have you ever wondered why you'll see cars that ram right into the tree? I mean, bam, they hit the tree or they hit something head on. You're going, what is wrong with these people? Well, this is, he, he said, this is like target fixation. So like, let's say we're coming down a road here and here's this truck and it's crossed a median. He said, we, want to, we don't want to hit that truck, right? So what we typically do, though, is we're so fixated at, no, I don't want to hit that truck. We keep looking at the truck, and it's a fact that where your head is pointed, that's the way you're going to steer the car. And he says, no, we should be looking to that right there, to that narrow spot where we can get by. That way we'll turn the car in that direction. But if we keep fixating on the thing we're trying to avoid, we're in trouble, right? So he says, look where you want to go, never where you're worried you might go. Now, if you think about it in our lives, how many times are we just fixated on stuff that we're trying to avoid, right? We're going, no, I don't want to do that thing. And he's going like, no, we got to change our fixation to something a little different. And here's the illustration of it. So let's go back to Peter. And so it's like several weeks have passed. Jesus has died He's, he's raised, uh, been risen from the dead. And then you remember on Easter night, 
Jesus appears to all 11 of the disciples who are left, and he breathes on them, it says, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so they receive his spirit. And they're different guys after that, right? And so now we flash forward a week or two, and they're up there in Galilee, and uh, Peter and Jesus and the other disciples happen to meet for breakfast. And we're reading here in John 21. And it says, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others? Remember, Peter had said, hey, if these guys deny you, I never will. So Jesus says, hey, uh, do you love me more than those guys? Like you would? Yes, Lord, he replied, you know I am your friend. Now, I'm, I'm giving you the Phillips translation here because it, I, it does a, a really good job of, of giving the connotations of the words that are being used for love, okay? So Jesus says, do you love me more than the others? And, and Peter says, yes, you know I am your friend. Then feed my lambs, Jesus, returned Jesus. Then he said for the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, returned Peter, you know that I'm your friend. Then care for my sheep, replied Jesus. Then for the third time, Jesus spoke to him and said, Simon, son of John, are you my friend? Peter was deeply hurt because Jesus' third question to him was, are you my friend? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I am your friend. Then feed my sheep, Jesus said to him. See what Jesus is doing? You can kind of read Peter's mind, can't you? I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks since he really hurt Jesus, and then as a result, he just felt so terrible. He was weeping, right, bitterly. And so he's probably going, he's probably fixated on, I don't want to do that again, but I'm afraid I'm going to do that again. And I love Jesus, and I hate this thing, and I, um, why did I do that? And he's still obsessing about the stuff that he's done. Haven't you done that? I have. You look back, and you go, oh, man, and what have I, how am I living like this and stuff? And Jesus is going, no, no, I want you to fixate on me. You start focusing on me and the fact that you do love me, and I got a job for you, and I want you to do that, that work. And then Jesus makes a new promise for the new Peter, and he says, I tell you truly, Peter. And when Jesus says, I tell you truly, it means like, you're hard to believe this, but trust me on this. That when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you are an old man, you are going to stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter was going to honor God. You get that? So he's going, you know, you used to be a guy that lived by your desires. You went where you wanted to go. You know, if your sexual desires said something, you did that. If your desires to say something to somebody, you did that. You know, if you were going to get, you did that. He's saying, but now you're going to do what you don't want to do because I've told you to do it. You're going to be following me. So he goes, then he said, you must follow me. And he said, that's going to honor me when you are reigning in your desires. He said, you're not going to be a one marshmallow guy anymore. You're going to be a two marshmallow guy. This is a fantastic promise. You know, he's going, don't worry about the future, just focus on me. When out of obedience to the Lord, we do what we don't want to do, that's self-control. And that's what God has called us to because these desires are going to keep welling up and so we're going to have to keep battling with this stuff. And so the Holy Spirit is going to change the stories that we're telling ourselves. 
I mean, I don't, I'm hoping that nobody here is living in hopelessness, but if you are, there's this, you know, so many times we just go like, well, I guess that's just the way I am. We just feel hopeless about our situation. We're going, I guess this is just a, a, a affliction. I'm going to have this addiction and everything. I, no way I can get free. It's like this story. Uh, I got this book on reserve at uh, my library about Sumner Redstone. He owned CBS. He owned MTV. He owned Comedy Central. All these fabulously rich guy. Horrible person. Just a horrible guy. He treated people miserably. Just a predator in every way. And somebody asked him, how can you treat people so badly? And he said, I don't care. I'm going to hell anyway. And I think people get that way sometimes where they just give up. They assume I'm just a lost cause. And the Holy Spirit's going, no, that's not your story. You belong to Jesus. Don't just say this is just the way that I am. That's not the way you are anymore. I think the biggest, I think the biggest temptation we've got is just to be fans of Jesus. You know, we're like, yeah, Jesus, you know, you, you paid for my sin, I'm forgiven, that's great. Now I'm moving on with the rest of my life, but you're so cool, you know, I know your stuff. And everything, you know, just kind of like the sports fan that just sits there and, and eats and cheers on the team, but he, he's not an athlete. No, the Holy Spirit isn't calling us just to be fans, he's calling us to be followers, to become well-trained spiritual athletes. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, and he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, is working in our lives to say, I want you to take this seriously. You're not fans. We are fans. We are. But more than that, we're followers of Jesus. We're going to take this stuff seriously and walk his way and do what we need to do. And it says, therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That word, discipline my body or beat my body in that in 1 Corinthians 9 is literally, I punch myself in the eye. And it's this colorful way of saying, it's going to be painful, this self-control business. Because, there, you know, it's not easy to say no to your desires, is it? You know, we go like, oh man, i got to deny myself here, I really want that, you know, I want to go my own way. But he says, you know, do it, do that. Let's, you know, let's not run aimlessly in this life of following Jesus. I want to just kind of wrap this up by... Uh, quoting my younger son, Adam. Uh, this is Adam. You can see that he's inherited my body build here. And I uh, <laughs> love it. Uh, just lost a little weight recently. No, he's, uh, he's a trainer out in Vegas, and he trains a bunch of baseball players. And the goal is to get these guys, uh, high school kids, to get D1 scholarships. And then uh, if they're already in college, to get them to the show. You know, and he's had several of these guys sign major league contracts. And he's got a gym there that has no mirrors. It just has a lot of free weights. I mean, they take it real seriously. And it's like he's going like, these guys, every, the tendency, it's just like us here, right? 
we, we get so lazy sometimes. We just don't want to do the work that's going to, it's going to entail to make it, right? It's hard to fight against the flesh. But he said this on a post that he had this week, and I thought this was, apply this to our spiritual lives. He's talking about soreness and how, you know, you're working out and you feel sore sometimes. And he's going like, that's not necessarily a sign you're doing it right, right? But still, don't get disturbed by some soreness. And he goes, one of the reasons training has such a profound positive impact psychologically is it develops confidence. You learn your body isn't fragile or made out of porcelain, and it's capable of much more than you realize. I think this is true in the spiritual realm too, isn't it? I mean, when we rein this in, we go like, whoa, I was able to do that. You know, like it says in James, you know, resist the devil and he will flee. We go, whoa, you know, this, this can work better than we ever realized. And then he says, a good attitude is to have, to have is not being worried whether some soreness may occur a little bit here and there, but rather, I am fearfully and wonderfully made and I'm excited to develop my physical abilities to the level God made them capable of. Now, let's just apply this to the spiritual realm. I'm going to just revise what he said just a little bit, that last slide. Or, and on the end there, but rather, I am... F- well, let me read it from the top. A good attitude to have is not be worry, being worried about whether some soreness may occur a little bit here and there, but rather, I am fearfully and wonderfully remade and I am excited to develop my spiritual abilities to the level God made them capable of. And I think that's what we want to go out of here with this morning. So let's pray. Father, I just uh, want to thank you that we are not prisoners of sin like we, like we once were, that you have called us into a new life. And this is hard, and it's not going to be done completely in this world. But Lord, I pray you'd take us from that attitude of just giving up, if that's where some of us are this morning. Take us from that attitude of just being fans, where we're just going, yay, yay, God, but not really following you. And Lord, I pray you'd spotlight those areas in our lives where we've just kind of paid the price for just being kind of slack and unwilling to, to deny ourselves. And that you would uh, just keep encouraging us, Holy Spirit, encouraging us in this way. It's hard. And uh, we've seen a lot of failure in our lives, but Lord, we want to see more of you. And we want the world to see more of you in us to glorify you as we look forward to the day when we'll see you and you'll finish this process that, uh, that your Holy Spirit is leading us to in this world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. We've made it possible. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.